Psalm chapter 32 and verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man on whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. When you sin, does something happen to you as an individual? When you sin, does it bother you? Does God deal with you? Is it true that as a child of God that you can never get by with sin? I believe the Bible testifies that it is. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Boy, I love this verse. I, I swam around in it for the better part of a day this week. Thou art my hiding place. In fact, in Colossians, we're going to look at if the Lord will help us on Wednesday night. If the Lord is willing and the church don't rise, I'm going to be back here preaching from Colossians chapter 3. Some of y'all didn't get that, but let me just go on. Thou art my hiding place. And the Bible said, for you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And David said already now twice, verse 4, verse 5, and now again at the end of verse 7, he said, Selah, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. You may be seated. We've been going going through this first verse and looking at this particular psalm. We divided this psalm into five different sections here in the Word of God. We began to deal with the first section the last time we came together. And first of all, in the opening verses, in verse 1 and 2, David reveals the consciousness of sins forgiven. And in that section, sin is described by David. He tells us what he's guilty of here in Psalm 32 and verse number 1. He said, blessed is he whose transgression, that's the first one, is forgiven, and whose sin, that's the second one, is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, that's the third one, and in whose spirit there is no God. That's number four. And so we begin to deal with how David describes his sin before God and how he in this section of scripture, he names that sin and he's already confessed it. Psalm chapter 51 is the confession of that. 
And there's good evidence in the scripture that uh, David dealt with his sin. Now I want to say this, if you deal with your sin before God, God won't have to deal with it. In fact, the Bible said in 1 Samuel 15 that Samuel took Agag and hewed him to pieces. You know why Samuel had to hack Agag to pieces? It's because Saul would not hack Agag to pieces. The reason why Samuel had to deal with Saul, uh, with Agag rather, is because Saul would not deal with Agag the way God had commanded him to. Now, unless you and I learn to deal with our sin in the way that we should, then we're going to find out God is going to deal with our sin in the way that we'd rather him not to have to deal with our sin. And so here in the scripture, not only is sin described by David, but the Bible also reveals that sin is dealt with by God. God certainly deals with David's sin in conviction in verse 3 and verse 4. And God goes from conviction to chastisement in David's life. Now here's what happens. If you don't confess your sin and forsake your sin as a Christian, nobody confesses sin to get saved. God requires us to ask him for forgiveness and to confess Christ. We don't confess all of our sins in order to get saved. There's no text in the scripture that says that we have to confess all of our sins to get saved. We confess our sins as believers because we want to stay in fellowship with God. And so God certainly deals with David's sin in verse 3 and 4 in conviction. And he deals with David's sin in continual sorrow in his heart. What happens to a Christian that gets out of touch with God is that God deals with them in conviction. And he deals with them in chastisement. And then he also deals with them in continual sorrow. God will not take your salvation from you, but it can take the joy and the peace and the blessed assurance and all of that. And you can get very low down as a child of God when that joy disappears in your life. And so when David dealt with sin in his life right before God, God dealt with David's sin in wonderful mercy. Now I'm glad tonight God is merciful with us. Another text in the Bible said that thou hast punished us less than our iniquities deserve. That is, God has been far merciful and faithful to us than we have been to him. And so in the consciousness of sins forgiven, David reveals how God deals with his sin. In verse number one, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Number two, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And so God reveals to us through the psalmist David's pen how God dealt with David's sin when he confessed and forsook his sin. The first word here is forgiven. There's possibly no sweeter word in the Bible than forgiven. You and I that are saved ought to use that word with a great deal of gratitude. 
And so I say tonight, the word forgiven means to be taken away or to carry out of sight. In the Old Testament, it is a picture of the scapegoat that carries the sins of the nation of Israel. The whole ritual that took place on the Day of Atonement, they brought the one goat that was to die and they confessed the sins over it and they killed that goat. And they took that blood and they sprinkled it and then the, the scapegoat would be driven into the wilderness. It's Alfred Edersheim that gave us the whole tradition of the Old Testament of how those fit men would drive that goat all the way into the wilderness and they would run that goat from post to post or from man to man until that goat finally went over a cliff and they would wave back that it was done, that the work was done, that it was driven out into a land not inhabited as the Bible said in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse number 22. And so I want to tell you tonight that you and I can stand on the New Testament promise and the New Testament reality. In fact, even in the penitential Psalms, the Bible tells us in Psalm 130, which is another Psalm like the one we're reading tonight. Psalm 130 and verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Aren't you glad tonight that there's forgiveness with God? In fact, God does not cherish my past sins. I'm thankful, hallelujah, tonight that he's written them forgiven in red in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. I'm thankful that he does not catalog my present sins. If he cherished my past sins, I would never know forgiveness. If he cataloged my present sins, I would never know peace. If he called out my future sins and my prospective sins, I'd have nothing but shame in my life. Oh, but the sweetest phrase I just read is there is forgiveness with thee. Aren't you glad God has still granted you and I, his forgiveness. And so God deals with sin in forgiveness. Psalm 32, verse 5, and thou forgave us the iniquity of my sins. Isaiah put it like this, that God has cast my sins behind his back. I don't know if you're able to see behind your back, but I have never figured out a way without some other means to see behind my back. But Isaiah said that he's cast our sins behind his back. And here's what the prophet Micah said in verse number 19 of chapter 7. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thank God he has put our sins behind his back. He has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. So you and I can have forgiveness even in a greater fashion as we shall learn than David did here in the text. And then secondly, not only does David say that his transgression was forgiven, but secondly, David said, whose sin is covered. Now this word covered is a very interesting word. Now mankind through the years has dealt with his sin by covering it in a wrong way. 
In fact, it is the tendency of Adam's race to try to justify their sin, trying to justify the fact that we have failed God. And yet we think somehow that we have some ground to stand upon in self-justification. Not only that, there is the tendency of Adam's race to cover sin. And it's very evident even in the garden of paradise. In fact, all through the Bible, you find out that man tries to cover up his sin. Now I want to say tonight, you may hide it from your wife. You may hide it from your husband. You may hide it from your family. You may hide it from your pastor. You may hide it from the policeman. But there is one that you'll never hide your sin from. You say, preacher, I I want you to know I got it all taken care of. I I destroyed the evidence. I I put this out aside. I I want you to know nobody knows. Everybody that was there, everybody that had any knowledge has already died. No, everybody that has knowledge is not dead. There's one that is not dead. He's very much alive. And you cannot hide your sin from a holy God. In fact, the Bible teaches us there's a covering of sin which brings a curse from God. And if you try to justify your sin and cover your sin, and Saul did just that in the passage. He he blamed the nation. He said it was their fault. He he, he shifted the blame. It It never was his fault. And that's the very thing that got him in such trouble with God. And there's a covering in the Bible which brings a curse from God. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. That's a promise from God. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh him shall have mercy. And we find throughout the scripture, those who tried to cover their sin did not prosper. There's a covering there in Ananias' life. Went to the house of God, put on his glad rags, come into church, decided to address Peter. And Peter asked him if he sold the land for as much. He was not under obligation to give all the money to the church that he sold that land for. But what he did is he lied about what he did. And then he tried to be a hypocrite on top of that. And so Ananias tried to cover his sin. And before the sun set that evening, God buried him and God buried his wife. And the church marched on in holy power. I want to say Ananias tried to cover his sin and God revealed it to the entire church. Achan tried to cover his sin. And you know what he did? It was so elaborate. In fact, I believe he enlisted his family to help him. Buried it underneath the tent. Took things which he should not have taken. And uh, no doubt rooted in pride and deceit and hypocrisy. He intended sometime to put on that Babylonian garment and strut around in the land of Canaan. He intended to be benefited from that wedge of gold and the other things that God said was the first fruits of the land of Canaan. In fact, it was so commanded by God that the person who took that would be under the curse of God. And yet he contrived to cover it all up, waited till the last very minute until brother Joshua and the power of the Holy Ghost exposed what he had done. And Achan tried to cover his sin and God revealed it to the whole nation. And then all the way back to the progenitor of the human race, Adam tried to cover up his sin. Had a little old fig leaf trying to hide his nakedness. 
And the Bible said they made themselves aprons, first miniskirt in the Bible. Couldn't cover itself up with that fig leaf miniskirt. Standing there hiding behind the tree when God came calling through the garden of paradise. And God did not say, Adam, where art thou for his own information? No. God knew exactly where Adam was. He knows where you are. He knows what you're hiding behind. He knows what excuses that you have. He knows what lies you told. He knows what weakness that you're guilty of. You say, you don't know, preacher. I don't have to know. There's one already that knows it's going to deal with you about your sin. But Adam tried to cover it up. He tried to cover it up with a fig leaf apron. And what did the Bible say? God made them coats of skins. Coats of skins, which implies that God must have taken an innocent animal and sacrificed that and shed its blood and produced those coverings for Adam and Eve to cover up their shameful nakedness now that they had sinned. Oh, thank God. I'm glad God has still got a way to cover sin. But Adam covered up his sin and God revealed it to the whole world. And so the Bible gives us this promise that he that covered his sin shall not prosper. You won't prosper with God if you cover your sin. You may prosper among men. You can do things crooked and things wicked and you can prosper among men, but you won't prosper with God. You won't get your prayers answered. You won't have peace in your heart if you're really saved and you're trying to go on in sin. You're just trying to grit your teeth and say, I'll never admit it. I remember we had a discipline meeting many years ago in the home church that, that there was a lady and she'd been caught in adultery and uh, you know several people had contacted this lady in the process of getting her to come and answer for herself and give an answer to the church house with the very last stage of the discipline where the Bible said tenant unto the church. And she said to somebody who called her, somebody called her and said, you got to be at this discipline meeting and you got to answer for yourself in the presence of God's people and before the word of God. Here's what she said. She said, I'll lie, I'll lie, I'll lie, I'll lie till I die. And she just might be doing that, but she won't be able to hide it from God. You may be able to get by in this world, but you won't be able to hide it from God. Oh, I want to say if you cover your sin, you'll not prosper with God. If you cover your sin, you'll not prosper in God. How is it, my friend, that men go on in their sin and act like that there's nothing wrong? How is it that men preach behind a pulpit when they're having an adulterous affair with some other woman and some of them nowadays, God forbid, another man? How is it that church members go on in their sin and some of them even strut their sin around as if it's going to be okay? Oh, I want to tell you this. Oh, the Bible said, he that covereth his sin will not prosper. You'll not prosper in God. You'll not have peace and you'll not have fellowship with God. I value my fellowship with God far more than this thing of sin that, that eats away at the inside of the heart that hollows out and takes the song out of your life and the joy out of your life and the smile off your face and it wipes out any kind of positive aspect of your life where everything is so bad and so so awful and so ungodly. Oh, I want to tell you tonight, there's a covering that will not bring the blessing of God. In fact, you'll not prosper with God. You'll not prosper in God. 
and on the testimony of David's life and many others, you will not prosper for God as long as you cover your sin. But you can uncover it to God and you can confess it and you can forsake it, which obviously David did do. And when you uncover it and when you confess it and when you get it right, then God will cover it and he'll take care of it and he'll deal with it in the way the Bible said. In fact, the Old Testament idea of covered is related to the atonement. The atonement where the blood of an innocent sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat which covered the broken law of God. Can I say I realize fully that atonement was a shadow because the Bible said in Hebrews 10 there's a remembrance of their sins every year in these sacrifices. That is, that atonement was not sufficient. Oh, but thank God yonder on a hill called Calvary there's one that shed his blood. And that blood was sprinkled in the presence of God. And that blood, hallelujah, in that greater tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not men. That blood, hallelujah, satisfied the just demands of God. That blood, hallelujah, marked my sin debt paid in full. That blood, hallelujah, took away my sins. It didn't just cover them up. Glory to God. That blood, hallelujah, took my sins away. That's interesting to me that the word forgiven is used two times in the Psalms. And the word covered is used in association with that. In Psalm 85, verse 2, Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Two times. Psalm 32, 1, which we're preaching from tonight. And Psalm 85, verse 2. So the ideas are connected together in the Scripture. In the New Testament era, our sins are not covered by the blood. Our sins are cleansed by the blood. Our sins are not covered. They are cleansed. In fact, when John the Baptist declared the atonement of Christ, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which what? Taketh away the sin of the world. And John said, John the beloved in 1 John 3, 5, that he was manifested to take away our sins. Our sins are not remembered year by year as in the Old Testament shadow. Thank God our sins have been removed by God. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 17. We read this morning unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I'm thankful tonight I have been washed. We sing it here. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in his grace? this hour. Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I'm glad I can say tonight, my sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Thank God, God has a wonderful way of dealing with sin. He has a wonderful way of putting it away. Thank God you and I either say, ought to say hallelujah, I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Not only that, the term is forgiven and the term is covered. And the term he uses next is, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Now the doctrine of imputation is a marvelous truth in the Bible. This word here, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Quoted in Romans chapter 4 in connection to the atonement of Christ. Now at the heart of our redemption 
is the doctrine of imputation. David alludes to it here in God's dealing with him in the Old Testament. In this sense, in the language that we're reading here, it means that God no longer charged him with this sin. Now there is in, in the penal system of our land something called the law of double jeopardy. That is, a man cannot be charged twice for one crime. That is, that the penalty cannot be charged to a man twice for one crime. Now, here is the indication in chapter 32 and verse 2. The phrase indicates now that God does not charge David with this sin. That is, God has dealt with David's sin entirely. Now, nor does he place that sin on David's account. That is, God does not charge David with a sin, nor does he place it on his account. Now, in the larger sense in the New Testament, it's far greater than this. Because the doctrine of imputation goes even farther than that in the New Testament. In fact, God does not forgive you and I by mere clemency or by man's clemency. God forgives us because our sins are completely paid for. Now, in the Old Testament, sins were not completely paid for. In fact, in the third chapter of Romans, Paul said, they were passed through the forbearance of God. That's why Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. He went down into paradise and took those who Zechariah called prisoners of hope. Why? Because their sins had just been completely paid for on the cross of Calvary. And so he's able to take that thief on the cross, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Old Testament saints and carry them from the paradise of God and move it from the heart of the earth. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, transport it all the way to the third heaven. And so he said, today, not only will you be with me in the heart of the earth, but thank God, he will say as the psalmist said, be ye lift up, O ye gates, and be lift up, O ye everlasting doors, for the King of glory has come in. And he took all those, hallelujah, Abraham walked in that pearl gate. He said, I walked all over Canaan looking for a land like this. And this is the city that I was looking for. Oh, hallelujah. Through the blood of Christ, you and I have got full payment and full imputation from Christ for our sins. Now, let me detail it for just a moment and I'll move to the next point. Our sins as sinners are imputed or placed on Christ's account. A marvelous exchange they sang about just a little while ago. His life was given for mine. Not only that, the Bible teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this tremendous truth. And I, I can't stay here through it all. To preach it, I'd have to preach it out completely. But I want to give you the gist of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 19. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 19, the scripture said to wit that God was in Christ. That is the incarnation, right? To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That's reconciliation. The Bible said, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That's substitution. 
Then the scripture saith, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. That's obligation. Now, notice here, if you will, in verse number 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us. That is, my sins were placed on Christ. All of my sins. All of my sins were future, but if you want to say it, so the human mind can grasp. Past, present, and future. Every sin that I would commit. Every sin that you would commit. Every sin that you would commit. Every sin that I would ever commit was placed on Christ and the sins of the entire world. Now the Calvinists teach that Christ only died for the elect and that Christ only died for the sins of those whom God knew would believe. That is absolutely wrong. In fact, the Bible said in 1 John 2, and he is a propitiation of our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ didn't just die for those he knew would believe. He died for all those who could believe. Christ did not just die for a select few that he knew would get saved. He died for the entire world, and he tasted death for every man. And thank God all your sins and all your wife's sins, all your children's sins, all your grandchildren's sins, your mama's sins, your daddy's sins, and everybody's sins were placed on Christ. Oh, my sins were placed on Christ. Now listen carefully. All my sins on Christ. Now here's the exchange. All Christ's righteousness on me. Are y'all with me now? Now if you like to trade, this is the biggest trade you ever had in your life. I traded all my sins And they were all placed on Christ. And thank God Christ gave me his righteousness in exchange and imputed his righteousness unto me so that now God sees me in Christ. That's why Paul said, for you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. The scripture said tonight that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so you and I are just as righteous as Jesus is in our position in him. I didn't say you were just as righteous as him in your practice. I said you were just as righteous as he is in your position. And so here you and I have the record of scripture in the New Testament that Christ bore it all so we might have a clear title in the presence of God. In fact, if you went to heaven tonight and you said, who is Tommy Winslow? An angel say in the book, justified. Justified, he's He's a child of God. He has the righteousness of Christ. He has been washed in the blood. He has the imputed righteousness of Christ. All of his sins have been forgiven. You ask me why I'm happy. So I'll just tell you why. Because my sins are gone. So in summary for transgression, there is forgiveness. For sin, there is a covering. For iniquity, the debt is canceled. And the record is clear. I like the way that God deals with sin. And through the record of David's confession in Psalm 51, he said that he desired God to give him a clean heart and a right spirit. And God did just that and allowed him to pen the record of his restored fellowship in Psalm chapter 32. Now I want to say tonight, not only is there here the consciousness of sins forgiven as sin is described by David, but there is also sin that is dealt with by God. 
And we read and studied about that for the last few moments together. Then secondly, there's the conviction of sin described here in this passage of Scripture. Now, sometimes people will tell me that they're not bothered by their sin as if it's a badge of honor. They're a special individual. I'm not bothered by this. It must not be anything wrong with it. No, there's something wrong with you. It's not that you are some kind of special person that is able to get by with sin because not only does David deal with the consciousness of the joy of sins forgiven, he also deals with the conviction which had smitten his heart during that interval from the time he covered his sin till the time he confessed his sin to God. Now, one writer said, God has wedded sin and misery as strongly as he has holiness and happiness. God hath joined them together. None can put them asunder. So, if you tell me your sin does not bother you, there's nothing wrong with God. There's nothing wrong with God's people. There's something wrong with you. Now, you say, preacher, can you sin as a Christian and it not bother you? Well, I can't say as I can testify that I've ever been able to sin and not be bothered by it. The Bible teaches us here that David here is describing the conviction which had smitten his heart during that time that he tried to cover his sin. Charles Spurgeon said about it, he who sows sin will reap sorrow in heavy sheaves. In fact, your joy is gone because of the presence of sin between you and God. The Holy Spirit knows it and you know it. You are evidently without joy. Joy has turned to sorrow as we have looked at Psalm 32 thus far because of the presence of sin. Now, the first thing David said is that the problem in my life was the silence of concealment. He said, I tried to keep silent. I tried to keep that sin covered. What happens is, is that sin, if you don't deal with it, starts to deal with you. If you don't deal with sin, then sin starts to deal with you. And so in Psalm 51, we find out as David confesses it, that sin does something in the heart. Now, don't tell me sin doesn't bother you. If you're really saved, something is terribly wrong. It may be that you're not saved at all. But I want to say that when you sin against God, it does something in your heart. David said, when I kept silence, something happened. And something happens in the heart. Sin seals the lips so that the good things of God don't flow from us. Psalm 51 verse 13 David said, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering the sacrifices of God. Our broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. And so David said, God, sin has sealed my lips. I don't have a testimony for sinners. I don't want to testify about what you've done. I don't want to show them how to get saved. Why? My heart's so cold and my spirit is so joyless and so full of sorrow. 
I don't have the testimony I ought to have. Why? Sin has taken away the good things that you ought to testify before God about. In fact, he said that sin seals our lips. It keeps us from teaching sinners the way. It keeps us, verse 14, from singing aloud. Why did the Israelites not want to sing? They said, we have our hearts on the willows. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How can we? We don't have joy. They expressed the joy of God in song. And so they were not able to sing aloud. Just like David, Psalm 51 and verse 14. Sin seals our lips, verse 15. O Lord, open thou my lips and my mouth shall so forth thy praise. Oh, thank God. One of the evidences of a heart that's in tune with God is a desire to praise the Lord Jesus Christ. But something happens when the silence of concealment takes place. David's silence in sin also brought a hardness to his heart in verse 17. You see, he did not have that broken heart like he had at one time. And he did not have that tender spirit that he once had. So unless you end the silent treatment before God, unless you end your silence before God and confess your sin, it'll seal your lips and cause sorrow in your heart. Now you and I may hide our sin from everybody else, but we can never hide it from God. Number two, not only is there the silence of concealment, There's the suffering of chastisement. Psalm chapter 32 said this, and verse number three, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. David said, I feel it. Not only do I feel it in my heart, he said, my sin is ever before me. I sense it in my spirit. He said, I feel it all the way down to my bones. The suffering of chastisement. You'll read about it in Psalm 51. He suffered emotionally. He said, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. He said in another penitential psalm in Psalm 38 that his loins were filled with a loathsome disease. I believe he contracted a sexually transmitted disease from Bathsheba. And he's suffering not only in his mind and heart, in his spirit, he's suffering in his body all the way down to his bones. Physically, he's suffering because of the chastening of God. In fact, in Psalm 6 and verse 2, he said, my bones are vexed. If you're not right with God and you know in your heart that you're not right with the Lord, your bones are vexed before God. And David said this in verse number 4, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. You see, David said, Lord, This hand on my heart and on my life, this suffering down in my bones. He said in Psalm 32, verse 3, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He said, I'm living with this every day of my life. And I want to say tonight, sin brings sorrow and it brings misery. It brings conviction and it brings chastisement. In Hebrews chapter 12, there's a word about chastisement for all of God's people. The Bible said in verse number six of Hebrews 12, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. I've heard parents say, well, I I don't believe in corporal punishment or I don't believe in discipline. We would say in the South, a whooping at the right place in the right way 
We would say a whooping, and we didn't get whippings. We got whoopings. Whoopings are a whole lot worse than whippings. We got whoopings. We did the holy dance. You know what I mean? A lot of kids today are not getting the discipline they need. God said he made no contradiction or no distinction between love and chastening. He said he loved every one of us and he chastens every one of us. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. For if you endure chastening, God dealeth to you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards or illegitimate ones, bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. That is, your earthly father believed in, and if he didn't, he surely should have. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father's spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. That is, they did it as much as they understood it was necessary on your behalf. But the Bible said, but he for our profit, that we might be the partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. The Bible said, nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So God exercises chastening upon his sons. Now, in the scripture, the Bible reveals why. In fact, he promises chastening because it demonstrates his love. You see, there are times when a child must be disciplined. Ask all of my kids. They all were disciplined by their father and their mother. If you ask them which one they want to discipline them, they would say, we want mama to discipline us for a very obvious reason. But the Bible said that God, as our heavenly father, disciplines us because he loves us. Not only that, it distinguishes us as his sons. In fact, if you don't experience chastisement in your life, then you're probably not his at all. God never whips the devil's youngins, but he always whips his own. And he deals with those that are his. And then not only does it distinguish us as his sons, but in verses 9 through 11, we read how it develops us in our walk with him. In fact, the Bible said that we might be partakers of his holiness. And afterward, verse 11, it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And so God deals with us even as his own children in chastisement. The silence of concealment, the suffering of chastisement. Psalm 32, verse 4, head back there with me for just a moment. The struggle of conviction. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned to the drought of summer. You're not trying to see what you can get by with or what you can justify or what you can excuse or what you can rationalize. You as a Christian know if God's heavy hand is pressing upon your life. In fact, he could bring you to that place where he gives a wake-up call. There's times when he does that. He gives a wake-up call to the life. And I'm thankful our Lord is merciful and kind and he is evidently working on our hearts. And David describes it in this way, that the heavy hand of God, the pressure of that heavy hand is upon his heart. Day and night, relentlessly, and in reality, day and night, you think about it every day. And you think about it also in the night. 
You think about it when you're in church, but you also think about it when you're not in church. The pressure of that hand, it was relentless on David's life, day and night, the unbearable burden of sin. If the joy of sin is unspeakable, then the sorrow of sin is unbearable as a Christian, as one who has known the joy of God's salvation. That unbearable burden of sin was so evident and constant in David's life. Now, as we look at this tonight, David likens his moisture unto that sap in a plant or a tree. He said it's turned to the drought of summer. If you've got a garden, you can ask these people here in these dog days of summer. You can ask the people here that have gardens. What does your garden look like about four o'clock? It looks like some of us look when we're out in the sun. Wilted. And in needing a drink of water. David said, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. The striking illustration of a plant in the summer heat reveals that his life is wilted and it's dry and it's suffering. It does not have that vitality. Listen, there's something that happens though when God allows it to have the revitalization of the moisture that comes through the wonder of rain or through the early morning dew. Oh, thank God that that plant will revive itself. Why? Because it has the moisture to return to it. So the removal of David's joy in the presence of sorrow and misery in his heart was real. Now here's what he said about that. If you've decided tonight you're not going to get right with God, this is what's going to happen to you. Not only is God going to deal with you in conviction, he's going to deal with you in chastisement. God is going to deal with you continually until you get it right. Dr. Roy Goodson was one of my dear friends. He's in heaven now. When I pastored in the east, he took me and my wife in. I was preaching in a revival and some old saints of God came up to me and they said, you mentioned Roy Goodson. He's held revivals in this church and preached all through the mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee, dear old man of God. Now, I remember one night he was telling my wife and I about this man, this man that had been a preacher and he'd washed out in his life and his life got full of immorality and he got disqualified for the ministry. His marriage was destroyed and everything else. And one day he said, I saw him uptown and he said, I always wanted to ask him. I said, do you ever think about preaching? He said, the man looked as miserable as anybody you could ever meet in your life. He said, he looked back at me, he said, preacher, I think about it every day of my life. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the sorrow that this man carried in his heart because of his own bad choices? Can you imagine having to think about every day of his life? He can never, ever exercise the gift God gave him. Every day of his life, he can never go back and undo the horrible consequences of his sin. Every day of his life, he would deal with that sorrow. And the Bible said in verse 10, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall come pass him about. Amen. David deems his own sin as wicked. He's not condoning his sin. He's no longer concealing it. He's already confessed it. But he said, if you choose to live life and make wicked choices, then you as a Christian are going to go through the sorrow that is associated with that. A sinning believer has no dignity about them 
and no joy in them. If you can enjoy sin, you better check up and make sure you're really saved. If you can defiantly shake your fist in the face of God and act as if I'll never get it right, then friend, you will have the many sorrows from the just hand of God. Sorrow and joy are rooted in the choices that we make as a Christian. A person may have the joy of fellowship and communion through obedience to God or the sorrow and suffering of sin through disobedience to God. I think in the chapters we read in 1 Samuel this week, it's very evident everything I've said tonight is absolutely biblical. Saul was miserable because he chose to be miserable. He chose to disobey God. He chose to partially obey. He chose to justify himself. He chose even looking in the face of Samuel, yea, I've obeyed the commandment of the Lord, knowing full well in his heart he'd not done what God said. Preacher, don't you agree with me? Samuel said, no. He said, there's just one problem. This bleeding of these animals, this lowing of this oxen says you've not obeyed. And you know what? The loss of joy in the life, the loss of peace and power, the loss of the wonder of God's joy is an inward indicator that in our hearts we need to do some business with God. I remember years ago in the Bible college, Dr. Goodman was such a blessing to me. He talked about preaching one night on sin like this, and he said that a lady came to the altar and she stayed and stayed and stayed. He said, finally, I turned the mic off and I got down there beside this precious lady. He said, I said, ma'am, can I help you pray about something? She said, preacher, there's something wrong with me, but I don't know what it is. He said, why don't you guess at it? I bet you can hit it the first time. She guessed at it and found out what it was the first time. But you know what? Sin's not really not that mysterious. We know what it is. We know what's robbing us of our joy. We know what's taking the peace from our heart and mind. We know where we are with God. The next step we've got to take is saying, Lord, I agree with you about my sin. I agree with you about what you said about my life. I agree with you, Lord. Isn't that the whole problem? You disagree with God and you disagree with what he said and you disagree with the Bible and you disagree with everything now because you can't justify your sin and agree with God. But if you agree with God, you can have the wonderful presence of joy in your heart and the wonderful personal fellowship with Jesus Christ. So stand with their heads bowed. The musicians are going to come.